This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. McCard carrying Basing at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. You stood next to Big Poppy, be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. This is Cade Massey, host of Wharton Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132, every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. Cade Massey, host and morning with my buddy and faculty colleague, longtime Wharton Moneyball collaborator, Shane Jensen. Good morning, Shane. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right, sir. How about yourself? Excellent, excellent. Yeah. Eric and Hottie aren't here. We could just talk football for the next two hours if you wanted. We could. We could. For some reason, Matt dropped into our rundown this observation about the Patriots, that they have more playoff wins in the last little stretch. How long a stretch was it? Since 2001. So that sounds like the Brady 18, era. 18 yeah, the Brady years. Ball. Yeah, the Brady era, 18 years. They have more playoff wins than 15 other teams. In other words, half the league almost combined. Wow. It's just ridiculous. Just ridiculous. Anyway, but we, I mean, I mean, are are you thinking much about football? I mean, what what is your June football orientation? I mean, saying? I am thinking about it just because I think about it a lot. But no, I mean, there's not. I, I mean, as far as day to day, like exciting, you know, sort of things happening. It's there's there's not much going on out there, obviously, right now. I mean, te- you you can kind of see teams are gearing up for for you know training camp and everything like that schedule uh rosters are finalizing there's a few like random free agents here and there that are getting still signed but pretty quiet it's 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 it's, you know it's not enough this is the team this is the time of year they take their break you know those guys work they work most days of the year they work really canadian football league cycling up right now is it yeah i think exhibition starts this month they did they shifted earlier for obvious reasons (laughs) (laughs) so so that the championship's not in january you know It's surprising that there isn't more use of the Canadian Football League as kind of a minor league development situation. Well, why, I think there. I mean, there. I, I mean, I think there is. I think a lot. I mean, it's kind of. I feel like the first stop for most American players that are kind of on the bubble of of making into the NFL. And certainly, there's players that have gone to the CFL, kind of had a successful sort of mini career there, and then come back to the NFL. I mean. Doug Flutie was one, is one of the greatest players to ever play in Canadian Football League. Actually, yeah, he set and, records. And, and Warren Moon before yep. him, a generation before him. But it's not Johnny as, Manziel. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it doesn't always work. Just for the record, <laughs> well, but, this is kind of the yeah. point. We remember a few examples. But if you're the Pittsburgh Steelers yeah. or the Denver Broncos, why not buy the Calgary team and have oh. it as a minor league team? Oh yeah, no, I, can, I guess that's right. The, that kind of direct business arrangement hasn't really kind of happened as much. That's true. But why um, not? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, there's a you know famous time back uh, 20 years ago when Bruce McNall, if you remember him, he was the owner of the um, the L.A. Uh, Kings that uh, actually got Gretzky. He, he was an owner okay. of an NHL team, but he also bought also a CFL team, the okay. Toronto Argonauts, and was trying. He was the one that actually brought Doug Flutie to the CFL and everything like that. So that you occasionally get these like crossover owners from Amer- other American sports into the CFL. But you're right; it's not it's not sort of officially a development league for the NFL yet. And maybe it's the difference in rules is. Enough that you know the NFL's Maybe, more comfortable doing something in Europe. That's I don't know. Actually, an interesting question: Could you learn more about a player having watched him in college for four years, where the rules are almost the same, not exactly yeah. the same, and but four years younger, or 
as a as a more mature person in the Canadian Football League. You know, it's just that we don't. It's not like we have yeah. player analysis evaluations figured out. It's no, no, like it's true. It's true, and I think guys. that may, maybe this is kind of an opportunity, especially like on the analytics side, to sort of like try and see what the kind. I don't know if there's research out there on the kind of like what kind of skills or what what you know kind of knowledge transfers from the Canadian Football League to the American one. I think it would be really fascinating study, I mean, to be honest. Obviously, baseball has an entire farm system, and they've figured out a way mm-hmm. to. And they actually have been experimenting, you know, with the Atlantic League doing a lot of rule changes as well. So they they, they do a better job of kind of having these sort of subsidiary leagues for experimentation and development than any other sport does. Clearly, they've had it for development for 100 years or whatever, and recently they've started using it for experimentation. But in terms of player evaluation, it's just wonderful. In terms of bubbling up and really understanding, it takes a long time. In baseball, developmental takes a long time. But they're able to use their system to figure out who the best yeah. players are. Now, the NBA has come around to this a little bit. They've got their G League. And, in fact, the Wall Street Journal had this really interesting article out uh, th- this last week about the Warriors and the Raptors. So our NBA Finals, Warriors and Raptors, they have... It's exciting. It looks like it's going to be actually a competitive series. It, it Well, it's, it's interesting. Mean, it's in got mid- the start of one anyway. Well, it, you know, it, the, the Raptors had a chance of taking it 2-0. But before we dive into that, the, there's this, the Wall Street Journal makes an observation. There are more G Leaguers... In the NBA Finals this year, there are 16 of them, guys who came through the G League. There are more of them than there are first-round NBA draft picks. Interesting. 16 versus 13. We think of the NBA as kind of the most extreme example of you got to be drafted early if you're going to yeah. make it. And, of course, there are exceptions, but this is a nice, like, broader look. It's still a little anecdotal, right? It's only two teams. Yeah. But it's 16. 16 guys came through the and G it's, League. And it's one team. I, I, that's interesting. Because I always think of Golden State straight. I mean, obviously, it's easy to look at Golden State and say, well, they've got Durant. They've got Curry. They've got, like, all these. They're essentially an all-star team in terms of their stars. But I think their strength, and it's kind of borne out in a lot of different playoff series, and I think including the current one, is their bench is just so deep. And it could be that, like, you know, this is one of the kind of ways in which certain NBA teams gain the... Like, I would, I would be interested to see, like, the the number of G League players on these particular teams versus the rest of the league. Yeah, right. So you that, know, like, a, are, it, are they kind of... Are they being a little bit smarter? Are Toronto and... Golden State being a little bit smart about using these other kind of leagues to strengthen their bench. Yep. So the journal said that they are assigning more players. Those two teams are above average in assigning players to the G League. And it just seems to me, again, I mean, it's so hard to forecast performance. This is true in all domains. It seems especially true in sports. One of the best ways, if in any situation you're hiring somebody, one of the best things you can do is get basically a work sample from them. And the perfect work sample is some kind of probationary period. Yep. So in academics, you know, if you if you make tenure, it's the, it's the best, longest-lasting reward you can possibly have. So they give you this very long probation period. You kind of match the probation period to the reward. If you can find ways to get the kind of extended sample, you actually – it's one of the only ways to improve your prediction. Right. And so baseball's had it for yeah. a century – Basketball is learning it a little bit, and this is this is exactly what you want to do. And it, and it stands to it stands to reason like maybe other sports could do it more of it. So, obviously, the NHL has lots of different leagues as well, but the NFL doesn't. And why why yeah. not? Here's the over caffeinated thought for the morning: Why doesn't an NFL team? My God, they spend they throw around billions all I'm, the time. Go, how, what does it take to buy a Canadian football? Like yeah, 50, no, I, I mean, I, I, I can only imagine. I mean, the one. 
the one thing that I think football is unique compared to these other sports are mentioning in terms of this like you know extend development period is careers are just so much shorter in the NFL injury risks are so much higher that maybe that yep. this this kind of like you know having this player go off and like yep. develop for a couple of years there's an actual risk there that you just never get to use them and on, on your actual football team yeah absolutely okay but I, I think it might be here we've wondered for a long time how do we keep more quarterbacks in our system Right. Some teams don't even want to keep three quarterbacks on their roster, which I think is crazy. Yeah. But some of them don't even want to keep three on their roster. And you really ought to have four or five floating around, if at all possible. You you can't invest as much as you optimally would invest in quarterback development and taking shots at quarterbacks. You just can't do it. So, And it's also the most prized, important position, most valuable position in sports. Okay, so I think you might be able to justify buying a Canadian football team yeah. just to stash – and develop and observe and watch a few more. I wonder if there'd be like some some kind of fairness. I, if this caught on, there are only like eight or nine Canadian Football League teams, right? <laughs> you don't so even know how many there are? Eight or nine? <laughs> eight, nine, I think nine now. They, they, I mean, they, well, they, they add they they. <laughs> It's it's been in flux for the a few years. No, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's nine now. Um, there was eight for a while though. I'm I'm, I'm on solid foot on that. But anyway, the. There's only nine Canadian Football League teams total, right? So there's not so first mover advantage. Yeah, no, I mean that's right, that's right. Just I'm not sure the league, NFL league office, would be as keen on this first mover advantage as individual teams would just be. Just go do it. I mean, you yeah. know, ask forgiveness, not permission, or whatever. That's right. Well, that is the Patriot way, certainly. Exactly. They, <laughs> they probably, don't get a lot of forgiveness, by the way. But well, <laughs> I wonder who the most progressive, who would be the most progressive NFL owner to do something like that? Oh, Jerry Jones. I'd love to see him try it out. Yeah, that's, he, he, but you got to have a certain humility about your ability to evaluate talent. Mm-hmm. My motivation is to better yeah. evaluate talent. That requires some humility about it. And that yeah. may not be Jerry Jones's forte. That may not be. No. Okay. What else about the NBA Finals? Are you watching this thing? Yeah. No. And I and I think uh, I mean I I watched both Game One and Two. I think they're really they're back and forth. Kind of really excited. I mean I, I I'm more excited about the Finals this year than I have been for the last three or four years. I think Toronto has a real shot. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in part because I don't know. I may, maybe these LeBron like Cleveland teams were. I mean, LeBron obviously is a transcendent talent, but he was such a focus of those finals that I've. I don't think we've had yet to see sort of like a more kind of like cohesive, well, you know, well put together team go up against Golden State and what right. that could possibly imply, and right. and just sort of seeing kind of the evolution and strategy and stuff like that. I think it's pretty interesting, and I mean, I think an extra sort of at level fascination that we haven't had to deal with is this kind of Durant factor that we have in the finals. Is he going to actually right. come back? And if, and if if he does come back, is he going to be a difference maker in the kind of way that he could right. be? Um, and then there's of course the associated drama with that whole you know dynamic that the consequences for the offseason, right? If he does come back and kind of right. essentially is, is is this extra piece that, like, you know, puts Golden State over the top in these finals, or, does that or kind of you, impact? Or, or, or the other way the other around. Way. Yeah. You go the other way. Um, does, how, how much does that kind of impact his own decision-making and the team's decision-making in the offseason? I think, I think there's a lot more kind of interesting narratives basically going on in this year's finals compared to the previous few years. Have you have we gotten to a place where we have any kind of um, re, you know kind of automatic reaction against the Warriors? Have they won so long no. that you have this? You know what's weird is I'm watching this series and I'm cheering for them. So and why, it's why weird because that... intellectually, 
you know, I complain all the time on this show about how the Warriors have been this dominant team, and it's sad that it's so predictable from the start of the season. I'm watching these games, and, you know, I mean, you kind of, even in, if intellectually you're like, oh, I shouldn't cheer for this team, you, when you when you actually watch a game, you've got this kind of inner feeling of, like, you know, joy or or, or, or sadness when, when, when events happening, and my joy is associated <laughs> with the Warriors, and I'm not so, quite sure why I've got this, you know, body high associated with the Warriors watching them. So I, I asked the question partly because yeah. I have the same experience, yeah. and it's so easy and common that once a team has dominated for a long time, you just kind of sit down and viscerally pull against them. So, for example... I watched a little baseball last night, oddly. Mm-hmm. I was doing other things, so I thought, let me just play Audie Weiner and pop this thing on the background. And, of course, I end up with the Yankees, and, of course, it's on the Yes Network, and yeah. it's just aversive as hell for Wait, so many reasons. Wait, you found yourself cheering for the Yankees? No, this isn't how, oh, good. Is I was thing. like, oh, my goodness, dude. I, mean, I couldn't imagine that story ending well. So I like the Jays for other reasons yeah. as well. Mark Shapiro runs a great organization. They're great folks. But um, it doesn't matter who they're playing. I'm going to pull yeah. against those guys, probably. But, but they don't have quite the same reaction with the Warriors. I think one of the reasons... And you'd mentioned LeBron's, you know, Cavs time. I never got fired up about those things. It just wasn't very much fun to watch. Mm. The Warriors are just fun to watch. So, for example, they assist. They are a very exciting team. I love their gameplay. So they had all 22 of their second half baskets the other night. Yeah. Came to. All 22 came on assists. That's 100% where the base rate and the NBA base rate for assists is something like 60%. Yeah. So nobody, I don't think anybody had ever done this before. Eric, I ran into Eric a couple of days ago right after this game, and he said that all five starters had more than five assists, That's which is just an incredible stat. I mean, that, I would, I'd be shocked if four starters had more than five. I'd be impressed if three yeah. starters had more than five assists on all five. So that's a kind of play yeah. that's just inherently fun to watch. And you you begin to wonder how much of that is the individuals, how much of it is Steve Kerr, how much philosophy did he bring? I mean, to what extent is it replicable? Yeah, else? no, and I mean, I think it's going to be kind of an interesting story over the next few years as this team kind of inevitably falls apart in the sense of, you know, so, several of these particular players are going to move on. Um, you know, whether whether that – and assuming Steve Kerr stays with the organization for a longer period of that, whether you kind of can see – we'll, we'll right. be able to observe whether right. or not that's kind of – to what extent coaching kind of has played a role in that sort of like very pass heavy yep. three point? I, yeah, I mean, obviously, some part of their strategy is clearly tailored to the individual personnel they have. I mean, you know, if you, I mean, you're not going to shoot that many three points if St- Steph Curry's not the one doing it. But but can, is is it one of these cases where Kerr might have brought some proclivities in there? And of course, he was exposed to no. the San Antonio system, which is a very assist heavy. In fact, the only other team that's done anything close to what this what the um, what the Warriors did the other night with assist was the Spurs. So he brings some of that, but then he's also got this roster with a lot of talent. Yeah. Needs, so things need to be spread around, but also a certain kind of talent. And so it probably is probably the case that his roster pulls him even further that direction. So the interesting thing is, is that going to permanently change his Yeah, and, and I mean, the interesting thing, and maybe the scary thing for the rest of the league, is Steve Kerr coming out of that San Antonio system. What's the one team that, despite all these kind of various dynasties we've seen over the last 20 years, has maintained yeah. a very high level and gotten back to the finals, like yeah. in, in, in almost in several different generations of players. Well, it's it, the it San was, Antonio Spurs, but it wasn't quite several different generations. It's a little I mean, bit like there was a constant the in Tim Duncan. That's right, but, but that's calling the Pats multiple generations, which in a way it was, mm-hmm. but in a way it wasn't. Yeah, so, I mean, Brady Belichick is not dissimilar from Duncan and Popovich. Yeah, though I, I, I personally, I, yes, and I mean maybe it would be interesting to sit down with a San Antonio Spurs fan and, and discuss this, but I personally feel like Tim Duncan as, as Hall of Fame, obviously first ballot Hall of Fame player 
is not the same kind of like you know generation spanning or I mean I guess he he, and, he very he, much was he empirically was but I, I kind of feel like that team it was beyond t- Tim Duncan's kind of talent and level was yeah. not enough alone to kind of carry different generations of that team I think it was very much coaching and very much a, a player development pipeline similar yeah. to the Patriots well you know is there is it possible that you needed a player that was slightly less leaned on yeah. as he was, or slightly high, less profiled than a LeBron James. Maybe right. LeBron James couldn't carry a, a team right. for 15 years or whatever it was. I don't, maybe, maybe the dynamics of that kind of superstar just aren't as stable. And Duncan was and a little lower It could be, key. or we just haven't had the observations, because in LeBron's case, he's had to carry a lot of very weak teams. I mean, I, I think, you know, again, th- th- we're stretching this analogy, but I think the type of teams that LeBron's had to kind of carry through the playoffs and into the finals in some of these years are much worse than anything Brady's had to carry or yeah, maybe that sure. Tim Duncan has had to carry. For sure. And, but some of that's, you know, as the economists say, endogenous yes. because, mm-hmm, you know, you mm-hmm. have to pay LeBron so much. And meantime, Brady's taking cuts. Yeah, and that's the where the analogy breaks down is that the dyna- the salary kind of dynamics and the yeah. ability to keep good teams together is, is very different between football and basketball. So one storyline that I have, I've not watched enough of it to know, but DeMarcus Cousins is finally back. And yeah, and he looks fantastic in that second game. Like, I kind of feel like he was a real, I mean, Eric would be able to weigh in much more than me, but he, I feel like he was a real momentum shift in that, ga- in that um, uh, game, too. I mean, he came in, I think he had something like 11 rebounds and, you know, a half or something like yeah, that. It was his, amazing. His plus minus was yeah. the highest on the team. I mean, there was something like plus 21 points per 100 no. possessions, which is unbelievable when he's on the court. And the he st- heaved a couple up that says that he should probably focus on rebounds, <laughs> not three-point shooting. But you take the, you take the yeah, yeah, the yeah, no, that's right. That's right. All right. So that, that game three yeah. is hap- goes back to Golden State. It happens tonight. Surely the Warriors are favorites. I haven't seen the number yet. We'll get a number for you. Four and a half point favorites. That's a little bit more. That tells you that market definitely believes they're a stronger team because the Raptors were one and mm-hmm. two point favorites yeah. when they had home court. So it'll be fun. It has been fun. Hope the Raptors can hang in there and keep it interesting a little bit longer. What about on the NHL? The other finals oh, that are going on. Oh, that's a really exciting uh, Bruins and Blues. series as well. Yeah. Okay, so two huge wins by the Bruins and yep. two squeaky wins by the Blues to that's keep right. things even. In fact, the Blues, the first win, game two, was... Um, Overtime. An overtime game yep. was, was it second second overtime, one, for one or two overtimes, and um, the Blues hadn't hosted a, a Stanley Cup final in forty nine years. That arena was going crazy. It was fun to watch for what a few minutes until they got blown away. That five. Did well, they no, pull, but they in, the second, in, in, in game four, uh, game four, oh, I, I watched okay. the entire game, and you know, a they had Brett Hull come out. At the start to pump up the crowd, and he pumped him up like he was a professional wrestler. It was pretty amazing. And then he uh, basically, and then the it was a fantastic game. And game four was fantastic, really back and forth. Um, and the Blues did look. I, I mean, it wasn't. You know, they have been kind of squeaking out their wins more than the Bruins in the sense that they have been closer games. But the Blues did kind of dominate that game, and especially that third period. I mean, I thought it was really telling. The Blues took lead. Uh, uh, like with like about ten minutes left in the third period, I'm like, oh, okay, here come the Bruins. The Bruins had one shot on goal in that oh, wow. last ten minutes. The Blues Jeez, continued to Lord. dominate wow. despite holding the lead, despite goaltenders being pulled, etc. So I saw that one of their big defensemen, I think they're huge. Chara, yeah, yeah broke his jaw. He did. So 
I suppose that wouldn't necessarily have anything to do with their inability to get a shot on goal. But when in the game did that happen? That happened in the second period, and I think it did affect. I mean, he's a he's such a huge part of their defense and team that I think that's going to have consequences for the okay. series. I mean, he did come back in the he was gone the entire rest of the second period. He did come back in the third period with a face mask on. Okay. Um. And wow. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's incredible. Hockey players. He's probably going to. I assume he's just got just going to have his jaw wired shut and kind of gutted out for the next few days but can you imagine playing professional hockey with a broken jaw is it because he's so much taller his head doesn't get hit he's literally a head above most people that's true but I mean you know a big part of his game is doing things like he did to break his jaw which is going down to block shots etc so I mean that's going to obviously it it is going to affect his game and his game is very important to the Bruins so that is something else out of game four that they can kind of take as a disadvantage you hate to see that kind of thing push us Around. No, that's I'm, right. I'm not pulling for the Bruins, yeah. but you hate to see it happen like that. Yeah, it's like Durant's calf or whatever. You just you know hate to see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, hey, before before we get too far from the cousins thing, our buddy Bradlow is got an opinion. Can we go to Eric and get a little debrief on Demarcus Cousins? Well, hey guys, um, one of the things that's wonderful is even when I'm not in the studio, is I get to listen to the show, and um, I really enjoy Wharton Moneyball, so it's it's great to listen <laughs> to the show even when I'm not sitting in the studio. I'm glad we um, sound as I, good remotely as we do in in studio. Do you? Actually, in a lot of ways, uh, it's it's beautifully clear. Um, one of the things I would say about Cousins is I would say the huge impact he's had, and this is about matchups, is that with Cousins in the game, notice Marcus Saul who dominated in game one, did not actually need to be doubled. And so now you have a totally different situation where Gasol was essentially ineffective. Then what happens is you don't have to double Gasol, which means three-point shooters weren't as open, and so the three-point shooting percentage went down. Draymond Green did not have to cover then Mark Gasol, and he didn't get into foul trouble. It changed the dynamic, not just of his offense and his passing, but defensively, it made the rotations very, very different. And Gasol, who was a dominant player in Game 1, was not as effective. And I expect the same thing to happen tonight in Game 3. Wow. That, to me, was the biggest impact. It was the effect of DeMarcus Cousins being a big guy who's skilled, who is as skilled and as big and good as uh, Marcus Gasol. Mm-hmm. And these incremental kind of downstream effects of, 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 of a move like that, uh, it, it makes it kind of hard to, I guess, to really analytically evaluate. It, it, it presents additional challenges for analytically evaluating the impact of somebody like DeMarcus Cousins because we can look at the number of rebounds he's gotten and stuff like that fairly easily. But those kind of like little factors that kind of incrementally add up and really kind of change the the gameplay, that's 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 yeah, a challenge, so right? Is, well, it's the, you need plus minus, but people, people who do a lot of plus minus say the sample size you need until that thing stabilizes is almost prohibitive. And yeah. so we overinterpret that to some extent. But that's And the other the other thing I would say is that Steve Kerr noticed this. And so what you'll notice is actually if you go back and watch the tape of that game, whenever Gasol came out, miraculously DeMarcus Cousins needed a rest. Yeah. And when Gasol came back in, miraculously DeMarcus Cousins was rested. And so Steve Kerr clearly understood the effect of that matchup on not to, on on the team defensively, and I thought his rebounding everything of his game was fantastic. That's either great. way, I just wanted to call in because you guys are. I mean, I love listening to Wharton Moneyball, <laughs> and I'm glad to be able to participate in a small way, even though I can't be in the studio. All right, Eric, thanks, man. Just one last note on that Gasol. He had 20 points in Game One. Game two with Cousins on him in 31 minutes of play, six points. Yeah, so it's amazing. There's, there's, wow. It's interesting that they have that much flexibility 
Um, that I mean that lineup already, and then yeah. they add this guy, and they can go an entirely different direction. No, I, I remember. I remember uh, in the off se- before this season even started, we were looking at that, that. That looked like one of the kind of more interesting. I mean, kind of high variance, but potentially very you know beneficial moves to the off season, and it's you know bearing fruit in mm-hmm, the finals. Mm-hmm. Hey, speaking of um, speaking of uh, high profile events, not quite sports, but close. We had James Holzhauer on our show yeah. last week, so he was he he was the, you know the Jeopardy rock star and was on this big streak. And the thing about Jeopardy is that they record the shows ahead of time, and so you don't you know there's like this lag. And yeah. he knew he knew that he was knocked out when he was on the show last Wednesday, but the rest of the world didn't. He went out. He got knocked out by a few thousand dollars last what a couple of days ago. Yeah. Did not hit the streak of maximum earnings. So something like I don't know sixty thousand dollars shy of Ken Jennings' record. He did great. Two point four. His per episode winnings was by far the highest. And I think he's something like I, I think as far as the leaderboard of like per day winnings, I think he he he's yeah, he's no, cleared it. It's not, all him, right? Oh it's, yeah, not even close. Not yeah, leaderboard. All of the highest yeah. days are his. But he said this thing. He said I and he said I love this quote. He says I played every day exactly according to my game plan, so I have no regrets. Yeah, like, that's a that's process. really fantastic. Process and, and I mean, it's interesting. I was interesting. We did talk a little bit about his strategy last week, and you know his 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 propensity to go for kind of daily doubles and try and like yeah. you know that that was kind of the key randomness that he even quoted last week as far as like you know yeah. what what you know his game like what makes a huge part of the variation in his winnings and that's really how he lost as well is that he i mean he played a he still played a great match in in his losing match but um his his opponent basically hit the daily doubles right. and, and and kind of took his strategy and and that's the thing you know, it's not it's not chance. it's yeah. not chance that the opponent did that and yeah. we, we actually asked him that on the show has his style of play which is so different than what people had seen before his so his style of play was maximum risk taking start with the highest value questions seek the daily doubles actively seek the daily doubles when you get them max your yeah. amount all of that kind of thing is new and it took a while for other players to see that because of this delayed taping thing. Mm-hmm. Once they did see it, they started mimicking the strategy. And so yeah. it's this interesting example that and we've well, seen. I, it'll be interesting going forward whether that just becomes totally. the strategy, right? Totally, totally. Yeah. And I mean, this is you know, this is three point shooting in in NBA basketball. It, I mean, it, but 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 happening overnight. Whereas yeah. three point shooting, that figuring that thing out took like twenty five years, right? But that kind of innovation and interesting from our perspective, that innovation came from. A sports better, a quantitative, analytically oriented yeah. sports better, bringing that kind of money ball orientation yeah. to Jeopardy. Yeah, and I mean, like, I think it's fascinating, too, from kind of the game theoretic. I mean, because even when he got to the final round, um, people, you know, the sort of, like, immediate impact, because he didn't bet his entire winnings or anything like that in, in the final round. People are like, oh, well, why didn't he go for the victory? Well, again, there was a game theory kind of component to that, that he basically realized that the only way he was going to win is if his opponent, you know, was wrong in the final round. So he bet exactly right. what he needed right. to, to in that event, in the case of that eventuality, that didn't actually happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So a few other sports from around the world before we roll into the bottom of the hour did you take in the Champion League final on Saturday? Afternoon? No, I read a little bit about it. I wasn't able to to watch it, unfortunately. I so slept th- in on Saturday. No, no that's it was not a good excuse. It's game. Well, I really slept in on Saturday. <laughs> yeah, yes, you did. Usually the Premier League <laughs> yeah. is in the morning, but in fact, this one was like a 3 o'clock game, night game over there. So it was did you catch Madrid. it? Was it a good I game? I did not. I did not. But it was not. It was like this thing where, well, if you're Liverpool, of course it was good because yeah. Liverpool clips Tottenham. They have... 
I don't know the the second or third most Champions League titles in history, and so they're they're I mean they're a storied club, and it's nice for them to get another one, especially after they got mm-hmm. nicked by uh, Man City in the in the regular season. But what happened is that they had a a, 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 a penalty shot in the second minute of play for a handball, yeah. and, they, and they they converted that, and so they're up one nothing with it, with two minutes into the match, and of course that's kind of a you know a, a death soccer, penalty for an interesting yeah, soccer yeah, yeah. game. So they yeah. played this desultory soccer match, and they got another match. They got another thing late. But if you're a Liverpool fan, so I kind of feel bad because I pimped it so hard. Yeah. It turns out to not be very... What about the Women's World Cup? You strike me as someone who might actually be interested in the Women's World Cup. I've watched I mean, I haven't been watching it lately. But yes, no, I am I am interested it in, in general. Fr- it starts Friday. Um, well, I'm, <laughs> I'm super good. Yeah, no, I haven't re- I really... Well, and then, like everybody else, it's I have not been... It's been four years since you watched yeah, it. That's right. That's right. No, I am actually... Uh, I will watch it. Actually, I think it's it's. I think women's soccer, in some ways, I find a little bit more exciting than men's soccer. Why? I'm not quite sure. Actually, I think it's somehow. I think the gameplay tends to be a little bit more. Um, I don't know. The, the I, I I like the passing style of a lot of the women's games that I've watched, and I think somehow may, maybe it's also that at the World Cup level, I think there's a little bit more. Um, Maybe it's just because Canada's good. I don't know. That, that's <laughs> a little say, bit more like kind of inter- you know, interest to me in in terms of like the teams, the the countries that I sort of right. have have an affinity for are the ones that tend to be the ones that are involved. Well, that, right? This is what I was going to say. I mean, the yeah, US is that's a, probably most. The of US it. is one of the best teams that have won yeah. this the most times. We have this Brandy Chastain penalty kick in our memory. From yeah, that's two thousand or whatever that was. Yeah, um, they are again the favorites this year. They're plus two twenty five. France, the host com- the host country, is second at plus three thirty three, and Germany um, is plus five fifty. You know, the, I, who did who, who were they playing in that? Are they J- playing China or Japan? Japan, Japan I think, is final? usually very good as well. So we'll I see. feel like Japan, Sweden, these are teams that are often at the top of the women's game as well. I, I predict we're going to be watching this and talking about it over the next couple of weeks. It's always a fun event, um, World Cup from either men or women. Coming to you from Huntsman Hall in the Wharton School, Sirius XM Business Radio Studios. Cade Massey hosting this morning with Shane Jensen, my longtime collaborator and buddy, faculty colleague. You guys can jump in here and join the conversation, 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Or give us an email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Or hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is our handle up there. Great way to reach out to us. Give us an over-under suggestion, a comment, a complaint. Whatever you got, at WMoneyBall is a way to... Get us up there. In the next half hour, we are delighted to have not only as a guest, but in the studio. Always more fun when the guest is in the studio. Ethan Green. Ethan is a colleague of ours here at the Wharton School. He is on faculty in my department, actually, the Operations, Information, and Decisions Department. And he's got some new research. We've had him on the show before because he does all this interesting research. He basically studies expert decision-making. And one of the best places to study that generally is sports because we have all these great data. So he's got chess papers and baseball papers and in this case he's got a horse racing paper and and importantly a horse betting or horse race betting paper so with this caught our eye and we wanted to bring Aton in and hear a little bit about it but first good morning Aton. how are you great thanks for having me thanks for being here appreciate it i heard you and shane chatting a little bit over the break and he was reminding us that you are a yankees fan <laughs> yes we it's try, a good time to be a yankees fan <laughs> we try to get our allegiances on the table yeah. no hidden agendas I'm also a Warriors fan. It's dynasties all the way. Uh, yeah, that's right. 
And pa- <laughs> and Patriots, maybe? Is that the third no, one? <laughs> I, I very much dislike the Patriots. Yeah. No. I, can't, can't ima- I can't imagine that combination happening very often. Uh, Gotta choose one Yankees of the and Patriots. All right. Some integrity there. Some integrity. So how, how avidly are you watching the NBA Finals? Very much so. I have a toddler who wakes up these days at 5.36 in the morning, but I've been up till 11.30 watching the games. Oh, really? All it's right. brutal. All right. So what is your take on how these things are going to go down? What, what's your forecast? How many games is this going to go? Hmm. I mean, it depends on the injuries, right? So Clay Thompson, Kevin Durant. Yeah, so Katie is out for yeah. Game Three. Yeah. Thompson is questionable. Yeah, but now yeah. Demarcus, you have Demarcus Cousins. Just pluck him off the bench and drop him in there and change the game altogether. As I if know. they needed more tools to work with. Well, they could use a few more. I know. I oh, <laughs> no, I, I I feel the same way when I'm watching the Patriots go on a run. I <laughs> be like, well, it'd be nice if they had like two. You shut down defensive backs. Right, exactly. <laughs> I want to say that I watched a little baseball for the first time all season last night, and I got the pleasure of watching the Yankees lose. It was very, <laughs> it was very satisfying. It doesn't happen very often, so take it. It almost didn't happen. They're yeah. like, they injuring no, away at this yeah. lead that the Jays had. They didn't quite get it done. It was kind of fun. Um, all right, so we're going to talk a little bit of horse racing here. So tell us, tell us, Aton, where this paper came from. So. Other than being interested in expert decision-making, how did you wander into this particular corner of the sports world? Yeah, so there's this long-standing puzzle in horse-raised betting markets in the U.S. Uh, it's called the favorite long-shot bias. So if you show up to a track in the U.S., um, you bet on a favorite, say a horse with one-to-one odds. On average, you're going to get back about 85 cents on the dollar. You bet on a long shot, a horse with, say, 30-to-one odds on the parimutuel board, you're going to get back about 65 cents on the dollar. So there's a pretty big gap there. So the first thing you should take away is... So even the favorites aren't great bets, but you might do it for pleasure. But the long shots are even worse bets. Yeah, that's right. If you want to hold on to your money, you shouldn't go to the racetrack. But we all know that. But (laughs) But a casual fan like me, who just happens into a racetrack once every few years, but doesn't really know what he's doing, this says to me that I should be betting the favorites. But it depends on your psychology, of course, which is what people have been trying to figure out. So they get this empirical observation, but then people debate why. Right. So there are a bunch of long-standing explanations for why this is. Let, let me just back up for a second and say, so people are actually betting on the long shot. This is not this is not like betting in Vegas where a bookie is determining the odds. The odds are determined in a pair of mutuals. So basically, the odds are inversely proportional to how much money has been wagered on a given horse. So it starts out with one number, but then the numbers move around as money comes in. And it moves around until the race goes off, right? Yeah, that's right. And so given the fact that you're getting 20 cents less on average betting on a 30-to-1 horse than a 1-to-1 horse, you'd expect that people would be betting less on the 30 to ones, which would lengthen those odds. Increasing the payoff when it does happen. That's right. Right. But that doesn't happen. That's right. Okay. So you wait. So this, you note this, this has been known for a while. That's right. So what, what interested you about it and why did you decide to research it? Yeah. So I, I, there are a bunch of explanations that have been floating around out there that, that were a little unsatisfying. So one explanation is, you know, in most walks of life, we're risk averse, like we buy insurance. But when we show up to the track, we become risk loving. And that's why we're willing to bet on the long shot, because even though we know that it doesn't win that often, when it does win, we get like 30 bucks for every dollar that we wager, right? So that feels a little odd. It's like suddenly we become this different person when we show up to the racetracks. It's like, oh, that feels a little icky. Uh, there's another. So, so hold on. So the, I'm just going to work from Please. intuition here. But psychologically, having had the experience, it's always, I shouldn't say always, it's it's often more fun to have the prospect of some kind of 10 to 1, 20 to 1, 31 payoff than it is 
betting on the favorites is like you you have to put a lot on the line to win a little bit, and so it's kind of the it's 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 the inverse experience. One difference between that and the insurance markets is that betting is in the mostly in the domain of gains, whereas insurance you're trying to protect against losses, and maybe that could explain some of it. I don't know. The psychology of it is very different. I'm mostly just reacting to. You know, the the lifetime of, of course, it's more fun to be pulling for the team that would be unexpected and therefore a greater surprise to win. Yeah, As opposed so, to the burden, you know, the burden. Yeah. Joe Sims and I talk about this all the time. It's like the, if you're if you're a fan of a team that is always expected to be in playoffs, you just kind of carry this burden through the regular season. It's like you can only kind of go down in some sense. Okay, this is my lay psychology, Aton. Right. So uh, we don't need to get into a discussion of what people are actually thinking when they show up to the track. But but this was the genesis of this project, and we started poking around, and you know we came across. So I wasn't a, a big better at the racetrack before this, but we came across this this concept of the morning line odds. Uh, so when you show up to the track, if you're like me, you have no idea which horse is the favorite, which horse is the long shot. But fortunately, the track is there to tell you. Yeah. So they give you this race card, and it has these predictions. It will say this horse say thirty to one. Or fifteen to one, or ten to one, and what is this number? This number is it's totally not the number that you would actually get if you were to bet on that horse. It's just sort of like kind of a prior on that horse's. So it, it just at a basic level, it's just a number that is made up by some dude at the track. Yeah, right. It has absolutely no formal betting on the numbers that you see on the pair mutual board, the numbers that determine your payoffs. So you would have been an academic, and you know, coming out of the University of Chicago and efficient markets, you might have thought, okay, one of the first questions would be. Are these numbers efficient? In other words, are they are they you would you, you one way to you, you I think or at least you, I well think calibrated, right? Well calibrated, exactly. Yeah. Same same notion. It's like you would hope that those numbers would be the error around those numbers would be in terms of what they actually end up being would be you know symmetrically distributed around. Right? The yeah, error you would, would be zero. You so, would hope that in particular because what the tracks say about what these numbers are supposed to represent is that they're, they're the tracks prediction of what the final odds will be on the parimutuel board. Ah. Okay, yeah. so what we want to know is, are they doing a good job, right? So I'm interested in prediction. I'm interested in expert prediction. Are these predictions good? And unfortunately, there's no repository out there. There's no online place where you can just go and download a bunch of historical morning lines. Uh, they basically only appear on the race card. They appear online the day of the race, but then they're quickly removed. And so what we did is we embarked on a multi-year project in which we collected these each morning. We basically put this on hold and then went back to it about two years later when we had collected a lot of these data. You, you, wow. Not only do they not believe existence. Gets some, you the racetrack every day, too. That's added, added benefit <laughs> of that. I don't know. Well, we did this without going to the racetrack. <laughs> but you're saying not only is there not an industry-wide repository, but any given track doesn't have a repository. You literally have to collect these day by day. Yeah. that's Well, wow. so, I, I mean, uh, somebody has a repository. But Presumably. that repository is not made public. Or even available on inquiry. That's right. Okay. Okay. Geez. Okay. So you've got a major data building project before you can even begin any analysis. Yeah, that's right. So we had a hunch, you know, are these somewhat relevant? Like, you would think that if you show up to the racetrack, you know nothing about the horses, you would lean on these odds mm-hmm. perhaps pretty heavily. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Okay. So how many tracks do you have to collect data from to... Yeah, so we were doing it with as many tracks as we could. There are only about 60 tracks in in North America. Uh, we have enough data on 30 okay. that we report in the paper. What counts as enough data? 5,000 starts. Is so a start is a horse in a race. Okay, got it. And how did you decide that was enough, by the way? Sample size being a big question these days. You know, you basically just look through the counts, and it was a cutoff that was pretty clear. Mm-hmm. Okay. Big three. All right, so you got 5,000 minimum horse starts, race starts, and across 30 tracks, you said, North American tracks, Mm -hmm. over a two-year period? 
Yeah, it's okay. a little, little over a year. Okay. And so what do you do with these data now that you have them? Okay, so the first thing we can do is basically just say, you know, are the tracks doing a good job of making their predictions? And so on average, these predictions are miscalibrated. So they're pretty severely miscalibrated. So, so first off, they're good at ordinarily ranking the horses. So okay. if you don't know which horse is the favorite, well, the horse with shorter morning line odds is more likely to win than the horse with longer morning line odds. Um, but if you basically just compare the morning line odds to the final odds, horses with 30 to 1 morning line odds, on average, they end up with final odds of longer than 50 to 1. Horses with 1 to 1 morning line odds, they typically end up with uh, final odds of about 1 to 2. Mm-hmm. So the short odds horses get shorter and the long odds horses get longer. Yeah. So what's happening is the morning line odds are compressed relative to the final odds. And you can just see this if you look at the distribution of the morning line odds. There's a lot of there are a lot of final odds, a lot of horses that end up with 100 to 1 odds, but you never see morning line odds longer than 30 to 1, basically. In some tracks, you never see morning line odds longer than 15 to 1. Okay. So they're censoring, but there's also a lot of compression. And the true the same is true on the other side. You rarely see morning line odds that are shorter than one-to-one. And, and I assume that the final odds are a little bit better calibrated to the actual outcomes than the morning line odds, but I, but that's an assumption. I assume that you guys did check that as well. Yeah, that's right. So if you basically think about what what you would get betting on a one-to-one horse if a one-to-one morning line odds horse yeah. ended up with those lines yeah. and the parimutuel, the favorite long shot bias is much more severe. You'd actually okay. make money betting on the one-to-one uh, or close to it, and you you get back about 40 to 50 cents on the dollar betting on the 30 to 1. Okay. Okay, so what happens, so here's another stylized fact. So what happens is at the beginning of the betting window, uh, so when the track starts taking bets and you start to see the, the odds on the parimutuel board on the tote board, uh, they look a lot like the morning line odds. So at the very beginning of the betting window, about 30 minutes, 20 minutes before the race starts, the way that bets are coming in, they're basically copying what people are looking at in the race card. Hmm. But when you get 15, 10, 5, especially towards the very end of the betting window, right before the race begins, you see a lot of money coming in on the favorite. So the mm-hmm. odds for the favorite shorten dramatically. And what does that mean? It means the odds for all the other horses, especially the long shot, lengthen yeah. dramatically. Mm-hmm. So that, that's just that has to happen, right? As one set of odds go down because this thing is parimutuel, the other has to come up. So right. You're just right. saying the action is driven by people coming in and putting money on the late. Short, late the money is coming in on the favorite. Okay, so I, and I I know the answer to this, but let me ask that: Do we know anything about where that money comes from? Presume that's okay. An well, well part let, of let me get to that uh, after I say one more thing. So, so one thing you can do is is look across tracks. So we have thirty tracks in the data. We can say are all tracks making bad predictions? And it turns out the answer is no. So there are some tracks, in particular parks right outside of Philadelphia, is very good at this. Mm-hmm. Their calibration plot looks great. For uh, their morning line odds. For their mean, morning yeah. line odds. Yeah. Yep. Um, but if you look at other tracks, and you know some of the ones that are particularly bad at this are like fairgrounds outside of uh, New Orleans, and then there's a Canterbury, it's a track outside of Minneapolis, you see that they're dramatically... Uh, miscalibrated. And the miscalibration always goes in this direction, overly compressed. Because if yeah, it was just right. r- noise, if this was just a hard task and they were bad, presumably you'd sometimes be the, the, have the opposite problem. Well, if there's enough data for each track, you'd expect them to be well calibrated, even if there's there's noise. It, to, 
Right, but but if you're looking, if you're going to talk about track differences, yeah. you would expect some variation. That, that's you just right. expect the variation to go in both directions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes, yes. Okay. All you see is compression when you see miscalibration. Got it. Okay, which is suspicious. Right, and then another thing that's interesting is if you just compare basically the extent of the compression or the miscalibration, these morning line odds at a given track, to the extent of the favorite long shot bias of that track. That is the difference in how much money you're going to get back by betting on a favorite versus a long shot. You see that it's quite predictive. So the tracks that have no miscalibration the morning line odds you see no favor long shot bias doesn't oh, wow. matter what horse you bet on you're basically getting back the same amount of money on average okay tracks with the most severe miscalibration that's where you see the most severe favor long shot bias okay so bettors are wildly influenced by this thing and then the dynamics of the bets coming in late the money coming in late cost them if the, if the, if, the, if those numbers are not good somebody's there and able to exploit it so that early influence, that naive early influences, it costs them. Yeah, that's right. So that, that's what we think is the interesting part of this paper. So, so so far, I mean, what we've argued is that the favorite long shot bias is just a function of these morning line odds being miscalibrated. But the interesting question that you're getting at, Kate, is why? Like, yeah. why on earth is the track, you know, not making good predictions here? Why are some tracks making better predictions right. uh, than others? Um, an even more interesting question. So, so the argument we have here is that there's smart money out there. The smart money is not at the track. So there are a handful of people out there that bet in large volume on races. And so they're not like me. They have good beliefs. They don't form their beliefs by looking at the race card. They have huge databases of race histories that they're running algorithms on to basically figure out the precise probability that each horse has in each race. So this is, of course, that we do for every other sport. There are no, we know there are sharp bettors on other sports using quantitative models. So you're saying these people actually exist for horses. Yep. When you say, we, we talk about them once a year when we talk about the Kentucky Derby yeah, as well. Exactly. That, you know, it's, it, there, there is that smart money out there. And we talk to people on the on the training and, and horse buying side of things. Right. But we know that there, we know there that, must be smart money plugged into the kind of databases that those yeah. those trainers are using. Well, even like Steve Levitt of Freakonomics yeah. fame is famously a serious horse better. People have written articles about that and he's a he's a quantitative guy. So, but by the way, when you say like what's what are, what are the stakes? What 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 are, what's the average stake or average bet from a sharp better in one of these like run of the mill Tuesday races? I mean, what when when we say big money, what is that what is that? So our back-of-the-envelope calculation is there are about 100 to 200 of these people, and to get in the game, you have to bet at least a million bucks a year, but typically they're betting considerably more. Okay. And okay. a given race, it depends on the track, but our estimates are about, on average, a third of the third to a half of the money is coming in late from these sharps. Okay. Okay, so that's a small pool of people. I mean, it's not it's not that much money if you're betting horses all year round, a million dollars a year. But you're saying some are higher than that. But it's an amazing it's a million s- bucks to get in the game yeah. to get in the game. Um, hundred to two hundred sharp horse betters. I guess that's enough. I mean, that you would think the market with that much. It seems like a small number. On the other hand, if they're all paying attention to the same races and putting money in the same races, you expect that those markets to get pretty pretty tight. Okay, is there any? Okay, so go ahead. Tell us what else you find. Okay, so so one advantage these people have is they, they know much more than I do. The other advantage is when I show up at the track, I bet my money at the beginning of the betting window. I line up like everybody else, 20 minutes before the race. I get my dollar over, and the track takes you know 20 cents for itself and puts the remainder in the pot. Um, whereas these people, they're not at the track. They're connected to the track via an API, so they get to basically— What's an API? 
Uh, so it's just a way of connecting to the track electronically so they can place their bets electronically yeah. and they can do that at the very last second. And so that's beneficial to them because at the very last second, they know a lot more about what the final odds are going to mm-hmm. look like than I do mm-hmm. 20 minutes yeah. until the race begins. And, then and the odds do move pretty dramatically in those 20 minutes? Yes. Yeah, yeah they do. Um, so and the third advantage, perhaps the biggest advantage they have is because their volume better is they get a rebate from the track. So betting at the track is expensive. When I put my dollar at the betting window, the track takes like 20 cents off the top. Uh, depends on the track, depends on the type of bet that I'm making, but about 20 cents. When these guys place their dollar electronically at the very last second, the track is also taking 20 cents from their dollar. But it's giving them a rebate, and that rebate can typically be large, like 15 cents on every dollar they wager, regardless of whether their bet wins or loses. Huh. So the tax that they're paying to gamble is considerably less than the tax that I'm paying. Right. So I'm showing up to the track because I like I like betting on horses, yeah. whereas these people are showing up the last minute, last second, because they think they can make some money. Yeah. And the track's interest there is, look, I'll, I'll give discounts to people who give me more volume of business. That's, yeah. that's the idea? Or is there additional yeah, so, incentive? So it's different from a bookie in the sense that the incentives that the track has is just to maximize the amount of money bet. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. they're 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 riskless. They they don't care which way you bet because they're just taking a cut. Right. Yeah. Okay. So if they can get incremental money from these, you know, sharps out there, if they have to give them, you know, a rebate to get that money, well, there's still some delta that they're pocketing themselves. Yeah. Okay. And how does that difference in tax impact the average better's experience? Like what's that, what's that translate into? Okay. So so here's what we think is going on. So. At the beginning of the betting window, the naifs line up and they bet according to the morning line odds and the race card, and they overbet the, the long shots. And so this basically underprices the favorites, particularly if you get a rebate. Yeah. Okay, so if if you expect that you're going to get $0.90 cents back on the dollar, you're still not going to get bet on that favorite. But if you're getting a $0.12 cent rebate, then your expectation is you're going to make $0.02 cents on every dollar you bet. Mm-hmm. And that's big money if you start adding it up millions of times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay, so what happens? This late money comes in from these sharps that are getting the rebate. This moderates the favorite long shot bias to some degree because it shortens... Uh, the odds for the favorite, and mm-hmm. thereby lengthens the odds for the long shot. But because they're still paying this tax, that delta, the difference between what you get by betting on the favorite, what you get by betting on the long shot, it persists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So does this give the track an incentive to have these miscalibrated early lines? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that, that's the that's so they're kind of in cahoots in a way. The tra- in, we don't maybe know tacitly. for sure, but tacitly yeah. they must be. Yeah, the line makers. Uh, or they, they, they don't have any incentive to cre- correct their that's miscalibration. Right. If, they, if they stumble across mm-hmm. this strategy, they might want to stick with it. Yeah. Aton's shrugging his shoulders. By the way, he's shrugging his shoulders. He's explicitly saying, "I don't." Well, know, let, it be, to let say? it be said that there was no implication <laughs> that no the implication. tracks were cognizant <laughs> of any any of this. But it must be true. You said there's variation in how. How miscalibrated these morning lines are yeah, across huge. tracks, and so does that mean that there's different amounts of sharp money, late sharp money, across tracks? So yeah, you said, is, is that sharp money going more towards like that one in New Orleans that or Minnesota, you know, or Minnesota? And that they are, don't come to fill. Sharp, late sharp money doesn't come into the Philly outfit here parks. Yeah, so we we don't observe where the money is coming from, so we we can't say exactly you know what money is sharp and what money is not. But but yes, that that is our story. Yeah. That at parks, there's very little sharp money coming in late, whereas at fairgrounds wow. or Canterbury, there's wow. a ton. Yeah. So this is a completely different explanation for the favorite long shot. I'm taking this back to the original motivation and the academic conversation. So I go off with this, you know, yeah. lay psychology, which also is you know translated into some papers floating around for years now. 
as the explanation for this, this taste, this taste for the long shots. And Eitan's got a very different explanation for this phenomenon. Now, and we're not saying that, that those explanations are false. That's right. But what we show is you don't need any of those explanations to basically predict exactly what you see in the data. Got it. Got it. All right. So we are down to just about a minute, Eitan. So if you would have our audience take anything away from this paper, you, you wrote it for an academic audience, and you, it's, it's phenomenal. You can track it down online. We'll make sure we retweet it. But... What do you think the the lay audience member should take away from this research? Yeah, so it's basically the big short happening at the race. The big short being? The big short being Michael Lewis's book and the movie that was made after it. What was Goldman doing before in the lead up to the financial crisis? 2008 era. Yeah, so they were packaging these mortgage-backed securities, uh, and they were with with the credit rating agencies telling betters, or not betters, but investors, that these were AAA, that they had no risk. Meanwhile, there are smart, there's smart money on the sideline. They're saying, oh, we sense, you know, we smell, we smell the the shit in these yeah. sandwiches, and we're going to bet against them. And Goldman, can you come up with a, a security for us to bet against these yeah. mortgage-backed securities? Of course, Goldman says yes. They make origination fees, and so they're playing both sides of the market, right? Just right. like the tracks. Fascinating, fascinating, mm-hmm. fascinating. All right, listen, Aton, we gotta we gotta hop, but we appreciate you taking the time to be in here. Wish you the best with the paper. It's really, really cool empirical work. We'll make sure more people see it. Thanks, guys. Eitan Green, assistant professor here in operations, information, and decisions at the Wharton School, faculty colleague of ours. This has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics Live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddy and faculty colleague Shane Jensen. Audie and Eric are out and about doing Audie and Eric things. We might get a little more Eric Bradlow in the last quarter of the show. He's got some obligations on campus, but he's going to try to sneak back by here and talk a little tennis and baseball with us. Audie's out of commission for today, but we're those guys will be back. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You guys can join that combination. Give us a shout. one 844 That's 1-844-942-7866. Email us, radio at com, Or hit us up on Twitter. At WMoneyBall is our handle. At WMoneyBall is the handle up there. You can reach out for questions, observations, whatever you got. We follow all of our guests. It's a great way to stay on top of the world of sports analytics. Just out of an interview with our buddy Aton Green... Fascinating stuff. That guy can, Super that cool. That guy is so articulate. Yeah. Yeah, really cool research. He's so empirical and so thoughtful and so careful and challenges some conventional wisdom. And then he can explain it so clearly. It's just yeah. ridiculous. They, bigger, better, faster, more. The younger generation, man. <laughs> I mean, it's inspiring for us. It's not very inspiring for myself, but it's inspiring for the future right. of humanity. That's right. Yeah. That's right. All right. Rolling into this half hour, we have another guest. We have Ben Lindbergh. We're delighted to have Ben Lindbergh. On the show, Ben is a writer for The Ringer. He is also co-host of the Effectively Wild podcast on baseball. He used to write for Grantland, 538 Baseball Prospectus. He was known, big splashy thing. We did an interview with these guys a couple years ago, a book called The Only Rule Is It Has to Work about taking over a minor league team out of Sonoma. Great fun. I remember that conversation. It was really interesting. Importantly, brand new book out today, out yesterday, out Monday. Brand new book called The MVP Machine how baseball's new nonconformists are using data to build better players.
players. Ben, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me back. Delighted to have you. Delighted to have you. Where are you calling in from this morning? I'm calling in from New York. All right. That makes it easy. We, we, well, I was hoping you weren't on the West Coast, um, which we have on occasion. I always feel a little guilty about, but I'm glad you're able to take a little time out. So the book just came out this week. Is that right? Yeah, just yesterday. So, so it's uh, the big launch week. Yeah. So what does the launch week look like for you? How how consuming is it to go do the promotion in all the different ways? It's been pretty busy. My co-author, Travis Sachik, was in town with me yesterday. We were on MLB Network talking about the book. Then we headed downtown for a book signing. So we're we're just happy anyone wants to talk to us about it. So for now, yeah. it's been so long that we've been working on it and unable to talk about it that uh, it's ah. kind of a relief to be oh. out there. That's a, that's a very positive thing to say. People are usually whinging about the promotion side of things. Maybe on day two, the whinging hasn't started yet. How much of your life will you give to the promotional part of it? Uh, for now, for the next few weeks, I'm, I'm happy to talk to anyone who wants <laughs> to talk to me. So, you know, we're trying to get the word out, and so far the response has been really positive. That's great. Well, listen, you had you had real good success, I believe, with the last book. Remind us who your co-author was on that, the book, The Only Rule It Has to Work. Sam Miller, who's with ESPN now. Got it. Okay, so this was the case where some um, some open-minded owner turned his minor league team in Sonoma, which, oh my God, you guys got I mean, not only yeah. get to run a minor league location. Team. If I got a minor league team, it would be like... Hey, a, Anchorage. No, I, I'm, I'm thinking <laughs> Schenectady, New York or something, you know, one of these leagues yeah. over here around the corner, and you got to Sonoma. But that was great fun. We talked with you at the time, and now you've got the new book, which we want to hear more about. But I want to say real quickly, I want to talk a little bit about your Effectively Wild podcast. I've listened sure. to it. I'm not even a baseball guy, and I've listened to you some, because I asked a buddy of mine who is a baseball guy, uh, maybe last year or sometime, I'm like, you know, I need... I need some variety in my podcast, and I need to, on occasion to listen to some baseball guys. Who do you recommend? He's like, no question, Effectively Wild. And I've listened to some of them, and I always find out, always find it entertaining and I always find it insightful. But I wanted to give you a little love because some, some of the folks I know who, who pay a lot of attention think it's by far the best baseball podcast out there. Well, thank you very much, and I appreciate your friend's recommendation. Yeah, we do the show a few times a week at Fangrass. It's me and Sam Miller and Meg Rowley, and we kind of trade off, and I think it's a good way to get an overview on the game. You know, we're not necessarily talking about the box scores and, and the standings every single day. We're trying to look at baseball in kind of an original and lighthearted way. And we have mm-hmm. a lot of guests on and we do some mm-hmm. hypothetical questions, listener emails. So it's a lot of fun. And it's been going on for almost seven years now. And uh, people are still listening. It's impressive. You guys are, I think y'all are one who keep the the episode counts. You're in the thousands. It's like Mark Marin, a thousand interviews. Like, oh my God, we're we're just... <laughs> We're just kids in this world. Um, ben, let's talk a little bit about the book. Uh, my, my, my naive summary of it is that it's about the shift from kind of um, assessing players using analytics or picking players using analytics, which was kind of the whole thing for years, to using analytics to develop players. Is that a fair summary of what you guys have written about? Yeah, that's right. So we see this as a new phase in baseball and maybe in sports in general, just for the past 15 years or so, we've been talking about Moneyball and the Moneyball era, and there have been a bunch of books in the Moneyball mold that are all just, how is this team finding undervalued talent? You know, it's been all about finding pre-existing players who are already out there and are ready to contribute, but for whatever reason, are just overlooked by the market. So the classic Moneyball examples of guys who take walks and have high on-base percentages, and you can go sign them before everyone else realizes that they're valuable. 
of course, everyone realizes that now, and every team is taking that approach. You know, you have quantitative people in every baseball front office who are really great at valuing past performance. So the big difference now, the way you can set yourself apart is by finding ways to create talent or enhance talent. You know, that was a question that Moneyball really didn't ask was, how do these guys get good at this skill? You know, in Moneyball, Billy Bean says that he has to go get everyone because he's been unable to teach his own players to have that approach that he preferred. So now teams using new technology, new coaching philosophies, they're able to actually make players better and build better players, as the subtitle says, and that's been a big difference maker. So, Ben, my impression is that this has really changed the trajectory of analytics in baseball. For they were, you know, baseball was kind of out front because of Bill James and because of data availability and relative independence of performance. They were kind of out front on the analytics revolution in sports. But then some of the other sports kind of made a run at them in some sense. I mean, base, basketball, especially with perhaps more open-minded ownership and and progressive data sharing. And progressive data sharing. This comes from a guy on hockey who's probably still bent yeah. about hockey being so not progressive in their data sharing. But also motion tracking is, is revolutionizing what's happening in basketball, soccer, football. So there was a there is kind of for a while it felt like baseball was kind of lagging and then it feels like this development thing has helped them leap over everybody because they're take they're hitting this next generation before it seems like before other people. And are. maybe it has a substrate for greater contribution just because the development period for baseball players is so extended relative to other sports. You're talking about the 5, 4, yeah. 8 years they spend in minor leagues. Interesting. Right. Okay. Yeah, and, you know, that whole process has kind of taken place far from the public view. I mean, until the past few years, you couldn't even watch minor league games without going to them. All this stuff is happening in bullpens and batting cages and backfields, and you can't see it. And so you see that someone got drafted, and then if everything pans out, you see them when they get promoted to the majors, and you don't really know how they got from point A to point B, but that's where some of the most fascinating stuff in sports is happening right now. Mm -hmm. And I think in baseball, you have this wave of technology now. You mentioned the tracking technology, so that's been in every major league park since 2015, tracking players in every facet of the game, batted balls, pitched balls, fielders even. And in the minors, you have every pitched ball and batted ball tracked down to the lowest levels. And you also have this new wave of wearable devices and motion capture devices and swing sensors. And so you can quantify how players are producing, you know, not just in terms of the final product, the pitches that they throw, the batted balls that they hit, but how are they even producing those outcomes? You know, the, the forces that are going into the swing, the mechanics, all of that can be analyzed in much greater detail than it could before. You have high-speed, high-definition cameras now that are slowing everything down and enabling teams to see exactly how players are producing everything that they produce. And once you can analyze that, once you can identify where those flaws are, you can fix those things. And so we've seen a number of really exciting career transformations in baseball, whether it's someone like J.D. Martinez or Justin Turner or Rich Hill, guys who, you know, in the middle of their careers or late in their careers, found a way to reinvent themselves by doing something different, getting closer to the optimal approach. And now that approach is being taught to minor leaguers. It's being taught to amateur ball players, And it's really exciting. So we're seeing this youth movement in baseball, all these players who are coming up 
just more polished than ever before because player development is really getting optimized. So, Ben, there's a lot of questions. I'm really curious about the dynamics and how this evolved over time. But just to make it more concrete for some of our listeners who may not know what we're talking about, can you take a story like a J.D. Martinez and tell us exactly what happened? What what was it that the teams were doing to create this trajectory, this change in trajectory that we saw with his career? Yeah, so with Martinez specifically, you know, he was kind of this fringy guy with the Houston Astros. He'd been with them for a couple of years, but really didn't hit a whole lot. You know, he's a defensively limited guy, so to be valuable, he had to be a big hitter, and he just wasn't. And so he set out to reinvent his swing. You know, he was someone who hit ground balls. That was kind of the old baseball philosophy, just make contact, hit the ball on the ground, hit the ball the other way. And he said, this is not working for me. I have to go see someone. So he went to see an independent instructor outside the game who kind of helped him buy into what has come to be called the fly ball revolution or the air ball revolution. You know, get the ball in the air, try to hit for power, change your mechanics to make that kind of outcome more likely. And he used some devices, you know, swing sensors and everything to kind of reshape his swing. And then he showed up in Houston and he said, hey, I'm a different guy now. And they didn't really give him a chance to, to show that. You know, he got, I think, 18 at-bats in spring training that year. And then they let him go. And the best he could get was a minor league free agent deal. And he signed with Detroit. And he showed that he had actually done what he said he'd done. And he became one of the best hitters in baseball. He's been one of the best hitters in baseball since then. He got himself a big free agent deal that he never could have envisioned five years ago. So he's kind of one of these case studies of someone who embraced a new way of thinking, you know, was willing to reshape his mechanics and has totally altered the trajectory of his career. And other pa- other players are paying attention to that and they're saying, hey, what what's this guy doing? What's that guy doing? And how can I do it too? So uh, now that we have the J.D. Martinez example, it's perhaps not surprising that other players are following it. Where did those initial examples come from? Like why did – there are lots of people, lots of people in the history of baseball – needed to change their game and they just they they didn't for one reason or another what was different about jd martinez circumstances that led him to do that thing when he had he didn't have an example of someone else who had done it before yeah and i i have one hypothesis for how it's maybe a little bit easier now is that this these kind of technology this new technology and kind of immediate data processing gives more immediate feedback to these hitters that are actually trying to make changes or pitchers Yes, that's exactly right. You know, players have always tried to tinker with their mechanics and, you know, change their swing, but it was sort of a trial and error process. You know, I'll, I'll try this. I'll see how it works. You know, we'll, we'll play some games. We'll see if I fail or if I hit better. And nowadays you have, you know, you can take batting practice with a, a batted ball tracker that tells you after every swing, okay, I hit the ball this hard. I hit the ball at this launch angle. If this were a real game, this is what would have happened with that batted ball. And you get the same thing in bullpen sessions. If you're a pitcher and you're throwing every pitch, you can look at this high-speed camera that shows exactly how the ball came out of your hand. You have devices that are tracking the spin of the pitch. And so you have a desired outcome in mind. This is what I want the pitch to look like. And after every pitch, you can get feedback. You can say, is this closer to what I want it to be? And it's this very scientific analytical process now. So it's partly the data, the technology that's out there now that wasn't before that enables this greater precision and feedback. And I think it's also once you had front offices and open-minded people upstairs, I think 
that has now filtered down to the coaching ranks and to the field and to instructors where you had this process of outsiders becoming insiders, you know, Bill James and all the people inspired by Bill James who now are working for baseball teams. The same thing is happening with coaching where forever it was, where did you play? You know, you had to have played baseball at a high level in order to teach baseball players. And so you would teach the players what you had been taught and nothing would change. Whereas now you have more open-minded thinkers in the game. And so some people who've been willing to question some of these philosophies they're now getting imported into the game and they're teaching players, even if they don't have that high-level playing experience themselves. So uh, one thing that I think all of this kind of increased focus on sort of development and analytics involved in development, one result that I would really like to see is more actual evaluation of drafting. The, the, the baseball teams, different teams draft strategies, how well historically teams have done at drafting. I feel like this, compared to something like NFL, where there's, I guess, a little bit more immediate impact of, of, of drafted players, in the NFL, there's a lot of whinging and a lot of analysis that goes into drafting strategy. Do you kind of see that as something, now that we have better tools for evaluating development and stuff like that, do you see drafting as something that we're going to study more? Yeah, it's always been difficult to study the draft in baseball because, you know, there's so many picks made and the has always been so low and, and is still so low and it takes years for even you know most of the successful players to get from from draft day to the majors and so it's always been difficult there there's kind of a lag time there's certainly an element of randomness to it that makes it hard to analyze over a period of years and then of course you have turnover and the people doing the drafting so that there isn't even all that much continuity in the actual team in place there so I think it's still challenging to look at that, but now that this kind of development is being implemented, not only in the minors, but even in amateur ball, you know, there are a lot of college programs that are doing a really great job of developing players in college. You know, some of these tracking devices have filtered down to Division One, Division Two, even a couple of high schools have these tracking systems in place. So. I'll be curious to see whether we do observe players getting to the big leagues faster. That hasn't really happened thus far, but you would think stands to reason that if you're making some of these adjustments, even before you get into pro ball, that in the past you might have had to learn on the job. Now guys are coming into pro ball as more finished products. So I wonder whether we'll see players start to move more quickly. They'll be not only more finished products, but they'll be more accustomed to learning using these tools and more open-minded, exactly. presumably so. So they're, in some sense, more finished, but also more malleable. It's kind of an interesting combination. We're talking to Ben Lindbergh. Ben is a writer with The Ringer, also co-host of a fantastic podcast called The Effectively Wild Podcast on baseball. He was the author of a very successful book a few years ago called The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, about a couple of analysts taking over a minor league ball club out in Sonoma. Brand new book out yesterday called The MVP Machine. He's co-authored this book with with um, with Sachek, his co-author Sachek. It's about how baseball's no, new nonconformists are using data to build better players. Hey, while we're reintroducing you, let's note that our buddy and colleague Adi Weiner just drug his self yep, I did. To, 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 to the studio. And he's a big baseball guy. Ben, ben, so we want to make sure you know he just walked in the room and he probably has a few questions. For I you. do, I do have a question for you, Ben. It's good to talk to you again. Um, 
remarkable to me is what I the, the baseball draft is right in the middle. It's just monstrous draft. You know, basically nobody pays it's happening attention. Happening now, right? Happening now. It's forty about to plus rounds. The first round's already done. And I actually wanted to get your comments on that. I mean, it's always was the prime feature in a in a first round baseball draft was the the young arms. You probably don't remember, you know, the Brian Taylor fiasco. A catcher, of, how about a catcher? Uh, you know, and and this year, um, and this year we I think I think this is, to my surprise, I don't think any maybe one starting pitcher. One pitcher went in the first in round. The whole first round. Right. Um, and if I'm getting that wrong, please correct me. But I think that fits into what you're saying, and maybe I can get your comments on what's going on with the way you know. Maybe the idea is you can build pitchers. You don't need to have to draft the super arm at the young age. Yes, I think that's exactly right. There are a few reasons I think for why we saw so many position players taken early on. You know, one is that I think position players have always been the, the safer and more reliable picks because they're less likely to suffer a career-altering or ending injury. And so I think there's more recognition of that now. Also, there's the fact that pitchers' roles have changed at the major league level, and you have starting pitchers throwing fewer and fewer innings every year. You know, last year, only 13 starting pitchers got to 200 innings, which in the past, I mean, many, many more guys would get to that level, and guys would get to 250 innings or even more. And so these days, the impact of a good starting pitcher is just a little less than it used to be. You know, you're seeing the roles of starting pitcher and relief pitcher blend a little bit more. So I think that's part of it. Just any individual pitcher is a little less valuable relative to position players these days. But I think to bring it back to the book and to what you're saying, I think that's absolutely true. You know, hitting analytics and player development are catching up, but they've always been a bit behind just because hitting is a more reactive activity and some of the technology wasn't there yet. But teams are really getting adept at developing pitchers, you know, through the processes of pitch design or analyzing the pitches that a pitcher already throws and saying, hey, this is a great pitch. You should throw this one more, which has happened many times. And so I think there is a general belief that we can make pitchers. You know, aces are, are built. They don't kind of come prepackaged. And so we can go get someone in the second round or the third round, and we think he maybe has some raw ability that we can mold him into someone that in the past we might have had to use a higher pick on. One of the things that I think interests me a little bit is this idea that if you, you are able to make a pitcher at a young age, you might be looking at things like psychological makeup more than we used to because if you think about it, what prevents you from doing the things you need to do, it's more mental in many ways than it used to be. So you almost have to draft someone who obviously has the athletic tools but also seems to be the Trevor Bauer-like kind of fanatic about trying to improve themselves. And potentially there's yeah. the ability to measure that. I mean, this is but what that, we do here. It actually is interesting to me because, so one, I mean, character has been an important part of assessment for a long time. And increasingly people are aware that it's not only important, but it's almost impossible. So let's try to get better at it. But you're, it's possible you'd suggest, for example, if this kind of development is going to be critical, seeing how players take to it, uh, seems important, and maybe that is observable. Maybe you mm-hmm. could, maybe for these prospects, you you bring them in to one of these batting cages or what, whatever, and putting on put them on some of these machines and give them some feedback and see how they take it, see how they respond to it. See, I don't. Maybe it's more accessible because it's such an important part of the game than some character development, character assessment has been in the past. Right, I think so. And you know, at the amateur level, you have some freedom to bring a guy in for a workout before the draft and get a sense of how receptive to some of these ideas he is. At the major league level, you have a little less leeway there because you you can't talk to another team's player before you acquire him. So 
you know, I've talked to some executives where they say it's kind of a crapshoot. You you might try to trade for someone because you think, hey, we can do something with this guy that his current team isn't doing. You know, we think he can be better than he is if we make this adjustment or that adjustment. But you never really know until you have him whether he's going to be willing to change those things. So we've seen some teams have great success with that. The Houston Astros are kind of the most notable one where they've just traded for a long line of pitchers and made them better than they had been before just by sitting them down and saying, hey, this is why we think your stuff works. This is why we think you could be better if you did this or that. They've had a lot of success with that, and now I think because they've been so successful, other players are more willing to buy into that. But you never really know before you acquire them. And, you know, I I think if a player has kind of fallen on hard times and feels the pressure to adjust just to keep his roster spot, then he's going to be more open to that stuff. But, you know, otherwise you're, you're taking a little chance. But I think you're right. Now that players have this ability to harness, you know, their own capacity to be better, I think it matters much more whether they're coachable, whether they're receptive to these ideas. And so if you can identify that that's a trait that a player possesses, that's definitely going to make him more appealing in this era. Ben, um, you're sort of talking about development as kind of the the kind of current sort of state of baseball or state of kind of like maximal kind of, um, I guess, gain in analytics. What do you see in the future? Well, what what's the next frontier for sort of analytics and stuff like that? I mean, one thing that I mean, maybe the psychological part is is is, is one frontier. Uh, injury prevention is one I've always kind of thought of as the next frontier. Um, just in terms of you know, now that we can now that we can assess which players are good and we can make players better, keeping them on the field is a huge part of the the discussion as well. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think we've got a ways to go before we get back to parity in development. You know, I think we're at the point now where the money ball thing is is kind of not quite a level playing field, but getting close to that point. Mm -hmm. I think we're not there yet with development. I think we're almost at, you know, maybe the end of the beginning of this phase of baseball. There are a lot of teams that are lagging behind and just haven't gone all in yet. So that's going to be, I think, the next few years at least. But after that, right, injuries. I mean, we've all been pointing to that for years now, and, and we do cover that a bit in the book. There are teams that have made some strides in that area just because you can measure mechanics much more accurately than you can bef- than you could before. You can quantify the forces involved, and you can identify potential risk factors there. You know, there's teams that are doing things with machine learning, for instance, kind of, you know, ingesting video of players and how they perform and comparing that to past players and seeing if they can identify certain risk factors and maybe make adjustments to reduce that injury risk. Well, I think there's a lot of that going on. You know, there are teams now, as we write in the book, that are investing in sports science and high performance departments and, you know, trying to identify how the body moves and how can we improve this? You know, it's not just the results on the field, but it's everything you do off the field to prepare for the game that is kind of getting optimized too. But I think there's a long ways to go there, and certainly any team that you know cracks that injury code would have a huge advantage, at least for a little while. Ben, uh, this is Adi again. I wanted to ask you a little bit about variance. You, you brought it up that the Moneyball era is somewhat is somewhat level. I, I would have, would have tended to agree with that, but I've actually made some inquiries and have found that there's still enormous variance, at least. Uh, by the metric of the size of your analytics department and what they produce on a game-by-game basis. That seems to vary still enormously from the top 
probably the Rays, the Yankees, this is the teams you know, and then you can fill in the bottom. Um, and it's a pretty, it's still pretty variance. I don't know whether it's simply because the the Moneyball stuff is just so public now. You can go to Fangraphs and just see, you know, the stuff that used to be under the hood. So maybe um, you can follow up on that. But my other, my really deeper question is, how much variance is there in this in this there's uh, this high tech pitching uh, stuff that really is the center of your book? There's a few teams that are doing it, and there are clearly teams that are not. But but how, I mean, what is the variance? What's what's the range that you're seeing? Yeah, there is still some disparity when it comes to you know the number of R and D analysts who are employed by a front office. For instance, you you have teams like the Yankees and the Rays and the Dodgers who have you know twenty or more people doing that kind of work, and then you have some teams that are you know in the low single digits, let's say. But I think the the floor is much higher than it used to be. You know, not only because of the public stats that are pretty good and are available, but Every team's doing something, you know, whereas in the past you had teams doing something and teams doing nothing. And I think the gap between, say, having five analytics people and having 20 is probably smaller than the gap used to be where, you know, you might have had five, but the other teams had zero. So I think there is that kind of disparity still when it comes to player development. And we've seen the size of player development staffs increase dramatically, you know, more than 50% over the past several years, as we write in the book, but also the technology investment. I mean, the Astros, whom I mentioned already, they're, they're kind of the leaders in this area, and they had acquired 75 of these edgertronic cameras, these high-speed, high-definition cameras that are able to reveal things about players that can't be seen otherwise. They had 75 of these things. They had seven of them installed in every park in their system. Before, a lot of teams had even acquired one, you Amazing. know, and there may be some teams that, that still haven't. And, and just even acquiring it and checking that box, that's a lot different from the implementation and from figuring out how to actually incorporate it into the process and have coaches all throughout your system who are able to use this information and people who can provide the data support. So I think there's a, a huge difference here. You know, we, we quote some people in our book who say that seems like from afar that that the playing field is getting more level but if you look at this player development stuff it's actually tilting more heavily all the time Ben, I have one sort of last question that would really really bugs me a little bit is the you know I may I cut my teeth in, in baseball data back in the days where I had as much data as the professionals. I feel like I've fallen so far behind that I just can't even write anything intelligent because MLB and the teams keep it so close to the vest. Um, where are you on this? I mean, I, I almost believe that this is almost at, particularly a couple years go by. They should release this data. This is this is part of the world. You know, um, I feel so handicapped that I can't actually do a a proper fielding Audie, analysis. you heard him. You heard what he said. So the Astros jump everybody by yeah. investing in seventy-five of these machines, and now they they get that's their advantage. They invest millions of dollars, and you want them to give you their data. Really? Well, I, I mean. Basically, at a certain point, it needs to age out and become public. As, as sort of twenty that. years from no, now, no, not twenty, 20 years, years from now. now. It'll age but out. how about MLB? I mean, they have all this data. Let's they belong to the that belongs to sort of the league, right? And uh, that's I mean, they they don't release it. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot that even MLB doesn't have. You know, MLB has Statcast data, which kind of gets released to the public in bits and pieces, and. It'd be great if all of that became public, but even if it did, there'd be a lot that teams had at their disposal that is not accessible to the league, that is just purely proprietary, and that's a huge advantage that they're not going to give up, and it is sort of a, a powerless feeling as a public analyst because 
I think working on this book has really opened my eyes to how little I know, you know, relative to teams. And right. so if you're going to pass judgment on a transaction, right. you have to right. go into that knowing that you're at a real disadvantage when it comes to evaluating these players. There's a lot that you don't know. And, you know, there's a lot that is subject to privacy concerns that can't even be shared without the player's consent. I mean, some of this stuff is not just how they perform on the field, but how they practice, how they sleep, their nutrition, their exercise regimens. You know, all of that will, of course, remain private, but it really is something that you have to be aware of out in the public. There is a lot that teams don't know now, and I think that gap is growing. And, you know, our public projection systems look at past performance, and they say, okay, this is what the player's done in the past, and here's how old he is, and so here's how he'll perform in the future. And that generally works, but nowadays when you have players making these dramatic adjustments, I mean, our public systems can't account for that. If a guy adds a new pitch or changes his swing or something, you know, teams have models that I think can project based on who the player is today. Whereas in the public, we're still looking at who the player has been for the past three years. And right. more and more now, that is not reflective of present and future performance. Really, really interesting. Listen, Ben, we're down to the end. Just one last question for you. We cover a lot of sports on this show, much more than just baseball. They seem to, baseball seems to have jumped over sports on this development issue. It strikes me that it's not that different than what happened in the beginning with analytics. Because baseball performance is so relatively independent, compared to performance in other sports, it's easier to drop in with these cameras and say, what's the pitcher doing here? Heck, he initiates the action. He doesn't really depend on much of anybody else. Even you said, you know, hitting lags pitching because it's a reactionary thing. What, what base, you've just done this book. You've studied this really hard within baseball. What do you think the implications are for other sports? When, if ever, will we see football, for example, or hockey, you know, a where we have 12 guys in the eyes or 22 guys in the field. When will we see them using tools like this and developing players as successfully, if ever? Yeah, it's so challenging to do it in other sports, but I think they're getting there too, you know, where you have player tracking or ball tracking metrics and in those sports too. And so you can start to get a sense and isolate players' contributions in a way that was really difficult before. And I know that people in a lot of other sports have used, you know, catapult tracking systems, for instance, to get a sense of the force that players are incurring and the, you know, load, the training load, you know, and and whether they need a break and that kind of thing. So I think it is already filtering into other sports, but baseball, you know, it has this 150-year professional history of great data. So you have this rich historical data set. And then, as you're saying, you also have this system where it's much easier to isolate individual players' contributions, you know, just because it's kind of a series of one-on-one matchups more or less and you have you know plays starting and stopping and you don't have 12 people moving all at once in continuous motion or you know hockey is is just comparatively impossible so i sympathize with analysts in other sports but i think that much the same way that you know baseball and the money ball movement there has proved influential i think this player development revolution will be too it's Mm -hmm. just going to be a little bit harder in a lot of other areas Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. all right listen ben thank you very much for taking time out of your day to be with us. We wish you the best with the new book. A lot of fun. We can strongly recommend it, and we hope things go real well for you. Thanks very much. Great talking to you. Of course, that was Ben Lindbergh. He's a writer for The Ringer. He is the co-host of Effectively Wild, the podcast Effectively Wild. You can follow him on Twitter, at Ben Lindbergh is his handle, at Ben Lindbergh. And as of yesterday, he is the co-author of a brand-new book, The MVP Machine, How Baseball's New Nonconformists Are Using Data to Build 
Better Players. He co-authored that book with Travis Sochik. Cade Massey hosting this morning with Shane Jensen for the full show. Adi Weiner for almost half of it. And Eric Bradlow just joined us. Rolled in, freed himself from some responsibilities around campus for the last quarter. Good morning, Eric. Welcome. Oh, well, it's been great to be here. And it was, as I said, it was great to listen to you guys the first half hour and to be a caller. Now I can say I've not only been a co-host of Wharton Running Ball, but a caller. In the same show. In the same show. Amazing. That's, That's talent. Guys, we're just off the phone with Ben Lindbergh. I could have talked, frankly, I could have talked to him by myself for an hour. I didn't need you people asking all these questions. He, there's a lot to talk about with that yeah. guy. Yeah. What do you think? What do you think? I mean, I, I, I'm sorry I missed the first 10 minutes. Um, I have actually enjoyed his book. I occasionally listen to Effectively Wild podcast. It's a great, great podcast. It is. It's, it's, it's incredibly, incredibly deep into ba- dive into baseball. It's so focused. They'll pick like one team or one issue and talk about it for two hours. But they do, they do it twice a week. So you can just, if you don't want, it, if you don't yeah. want that team, skip yeah. it and go yeah, to, skip the, go it to the, the next one. The, headline, right? the thing that Ben talked about, which I was, you know, I could have easily asked him about, which I asked lots of guests about, is do you see the future, let's say, in baseball? I always say, is is it the better data, the better math, or the better question-asking organization? And the way I heard him say it is, I think the data is becoming more democratized. I think anybody can, I hate to say it, you can hire people that know machine learning. But asking the right questions and understanding kind of how to make organizational change, I think that, to be honest with you, in my opinion, not just an opinion, I think that's where the greatest variance still sits. I think... Data, machine learning, other types of methods, those are becoming democratized. I think the insights, the ability to affect them in, and, and implement them in your organization, yeah. to me, that's still, it's, yeah. you know, it's the people analytics. I mean, to me, that's still the much bigger driver. Well, but, people are saying that, that uh, it's exactly that organizational strength that has led, the, for example, the Yankees, who lost most all its frontline players in the beginning of the season, they just had an incredible deep pool of talent that they had selected they have, and they have an entire system designed to to promote to train and and they had guys step up who you know almost as good well let's not i i, I think and we, that 200 million dollars well yeah, the guys playing now aren't so hard <laughs> no not the guys yeah, playing yeah. now <laughs> we, we we risk though saying that this thing is ever perfectly knowable they're never right. going to design a system that produces like on demand these punt you know just cut and paste players there's still going to be this very difficult thing to pull off so whenever a team is having that kind of success you have to acknowledge that some of chunk, course. chunk of it, it comes from luck. Good, yeah, right. positive, positive you know, variance the fact that there's so much unpredictability makes it interesting for us yeah, as no, thank, God. thank God there is exactly so let's run through a handful of topics here in the time we have before we hit the final home stretch I want to give one small one shout out to the UCLA Bruins women's softball team the, yeah. the the world's the the college women's college world series final has been the last two days and the bruins they're a long-standing they have a legacy in the sport but they beat the oklahoma sooners and i always want to underline anytime i o- heard about oklahoma, that actually anytime through. oklahoma gets beat i want to bring it up yeah and they lost by 13 runs in the first match the first game, so Match it was kind of oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, just a little note: College World Series always fun. Two out of three Bruins sweep the Sooners last night. Sorry, Shane. I just wanted to say that I heard about that on Tom Brady's Instagram, which is a great follow, by the way. Is that right? right. Yeah, yeah, actually. So tell me, tell me what you think about Tom Brady trying to trademark Tom Terrific. Yeah, I'm not so into that. I have to say. I mean, right. it's, it's this is uh, a little tweet, tweeter well, fact, Twitter fact. Yeah, and, and the, <laughs> the optics of it aren't great because I mean, Tom again, for, for for people who are younger like yeah. me, I mean, I never knew that Tom Seaver was known as Tom Terrific okay, or whatever. True. I mean, that's yeah. 
That's you know, for me, Tom Terrific is associated with Tom Brady. I've but never heard it actually associated with Tom Brady. Tom Terrific what sounds is, like a nineteen forties model. I prefer touchdown Tom myself. Yeah. But sure. you know That's But better. anyway, I, I agree the trademarking is is, is a questionable questionable so, move. What about uh tennis? We got a little tournament going on over in France right now. Well we can progress on our over under which was two two point five sets, sets lost, lost by Nadal. Uh, by Nadal. Well, he already did. lost one, so that's Yeah, but <laughs> I'm hey, still, and a low land. I, I mean, still like the under. You but still like the under, huh? I still like the under. But so Federer got through Warinka yesterday. Yeah, that was a fantastic match. I mean, it was such high level of tennis. But again, I will bring up a couple things about the uh, French Open. First, and this is I've said this all the time. Federer won the match in four. He was two of eighteen or nineteen on break points. So I go back to the fact that when the real pressure happens. Sometimes the old guys, like if you look mm-hmm. historically at Federer's break point rate, even in among top 10 players, there's you'll never find a match when he was 28 years old where Federer's two for 19 on break points. None. So, so let's just go, let's go with base rates here. So typically the server wins 60, 70 yeah, exactly. percent of the points. Exactly. So, okay. so he should be up around five, six at least. Yeah. And also, 18, yeah. also let's remember it, just even the base rate is his career record against Rorinka going into this match was 22 and three. So it's not just that he's base rates, but he's the he's better, better player. player so, he's yeah. the better player. So that's why I'm not confident about yeah. him against Nadal. I think he even, he'll get a very small number of opportunities against Nadal and I don't think he's converting those big opportunities. So you think Nadal's got him in straight sets? I wow. think Nadal probably has him in straight sets. Maybe Federer wow. wins one set in the match. I, look, I'm How about Djokovic? for Djokovic. What, what, what do you hear about him? Well, Djokovic actually has an interesting match today. So Djokovic is playing one of the other young guns, Alexander Zverev, who's number five in the world. Um, I actually looked at this. In their last four matches, Zverev is... Two and two against Djokovic. I think they've only played seven or eight times, so it's not like I've cherry picked. But I'm saying mm-hmm. in the most in the last two years they've played four times. Verov is two yeah. and two, so there's no reason. And by the way, in the other side of that draw is Kachanov, who's number ten in the world, who beat Del Patro, but Dominic Thiem, who we did talk about, he's still alive in the tournament. Who I expect to win. I expect it to be Djokovic and Thiem, and Nadal and Federer. Now, what's interesting is. You've heard of all four of those guys. Matter of fact, they're the top, pretty much the top four seeds, especially on clay. On the women's side, oh, who do you know? Serena's well, gone, right? No, not just Serena's oh, gone. Osaka's gone too. Osaka's wow. gone. So one of the following two women are going to be in the finals: Kanta or Vondrasova, because they're in the one semifinal that's already been determined. So one of them, Vondrasova's not ranked. Kanta's like ranked like twenty-seven. On the other side, Simona Halep is the big name still around. Madison Keys is still around. But the women's side is, Wide again, open. it's what we talked about before yeah. the tournament. You could pick 15 or 20 women that could win the tournament. On been, the men's side, it's going to the chalk but This again. has been true for the French for, for many years on the women's side. There's, there's, there hasn't been a repeat winner in the French tournament. I mean, on the this has side. been true for most of, like, the last decade of Serena's career is that I, I mean, and this is again a, ca- a a statement of a casual fan. But once Serena gets knocked out, it's like who who, who y- right. it, it just seems win like that a, tournament. A, a, it, it could be anybody. Yeah. So uh, one fun trivia: thirty years ago, do, do, does anyone remember what thirty years ago this French Open was? What phenomenon occurred then? Eighty nine. I think that was the, it was, was the Michael was Chang Hingis? French Mike, Open. Oh, Michael Chang. That was the Michael Chang French wow. Open. Yeah. What I remember about that French Open, which I'm glad I was able to pull that one out. <laughs> um, number two, I remember there was one match. He was, matter of fact, 
my son and I were talking about this the other day. He was cramping so badly in one of his matches in that French Open. He ended up serving underhand for a significant part of oh the match. Gosh, now, no, 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 no. But one of the things we ended up talking about was. Would that be a good strategy? Because if you serve underhand, the ball ends up shorter in the box. You bring the other person forward, and actually it can lead to a significant advantage. Now, Chang did it because he's cramping and he couldn't actually serve. But I remember that match. Wow. And then I was wondering, wow. why don't guys yeah. – you guys have talked about variance a lot. Why don't guys every once in a while just wind up for the big serve and then slice it in underhand? You never see guys do it. I think it would be effective. But that's what I remember yeah. about that French well, Open. So I, I was traveling Europe at that time. That was like a post-college Europe, and we were in France. I, that's the only time I've been to the French Open was that year. But more fun than going, really, was the buildup. Because when you're in Paris and everybody was just exploding about Michael Chain, all the newspapers were about no, no, Michael but, Chain. But let's also remember, that ended the U.S.'s uh, streak of not winning the French. Because remember... Jimmy Connors never won None the French. None of these guys who win the McEnroe yeah. never won the French. Sampras never won the French. But these were big Agassi hitter. eventually. No, no. Agassi eventually, did win the yeah. eventually won the French. Jim Courier won the French. But Michael Chang was the first yeah. breakthrough. He was the first sort of sort of slow, long strokes. You know, non. He was a backboard. He was a backboard. Right, he a just, backboard. He got right. everything back yeah. basically. All right. So a couple of things going on in baseball. I just want to note for you guys, y'all are baseball people. How much do these? To me, these just completely jump out. So Scherzer has struck out. Scherzer. Did I mispronounce his name? Scherzer. All right. Scherzer. Fifteen in his last outing. Fifteen strikeouts recently. That's six times in his career he struck out fifteen plus. The guys with more than that, there are only there are only five of them with more than that. And they're all well. Nolan Ryan Nolan, better be one. Yeah, yeah. well, Nolan Ryan's twenty six. Roger Clemens. Like Roger Clemens sh- with ten. How yeah. about Pedro? Pedro with ten. You've yeah. got three of the five. Can you get the other? Can you get the other two? One. You got to go way Kershaw? back. Kershaw. Is Kershaw no, one? Walter no. Johnson? I don't know. No, not that far back. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. Sandy, Sandy Koufax. Sandy oh, yeah. And then you're missing the number Gibson? one. You're missing the all time number one. You said Ryan. He's twenty six. Or somebody with more. Kershaw or Tom Seaver? The big unit, 29X oh, for, wow. uh, for Randy Johnson. Man. So yep. that's that's pretty cool. And then much more um, process-oriented. They, they pulled him out in the ninth inning. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. 120 pitches, 15 strikeouts. But just big to be lead. clear, I think we all agree, if he had had 18 strikeouts going into the ninth, there's no, and he could have broken the record, there's no way they pull him out. I don't you know. Think? I don't they know. Pulled they pulled out Chris Sale. Yeah. With, like, he, Chris week. Sale had how many through seven? He had through seven, I think 17 or yeah, six. Yeah, ridiculous seven. number. Yeah. yeah. And, and they, they, they pulled him. I'm I mean, Chris Sale had greater. Yeah, yeah. But the, I'm unhappy new, about this. It's the uh, new. Oh, uh, that's awful. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't like it either. They pulled people out in the sixth inning with no hitters. Yeah. Yeah, but that's nah, that's, yeah, that's yeah, a little different, yeah. and you're you're still, <laughs> a, a, as we know, a long mile a long away. away. Seventh, seventeen, okay, so it's seven. You're not that far away. Speaking of durability, and speaking of of, of notable events from the '80s, Cal Ripken Jr. This week in 1982, Cal Ripken Jr. hit his record streak of 2,632 consecutive games played. How do you think this ranks in terms of streaks? I think it's it is a uh, well. I mean, it's an impressive endurance streak. It's just uh, yeah. you know I, I can't it's get too excited about it in like kind of a performance streak. Like this versus like you know like Joe DiMaggio's hitting streak or something like that. I just can't. Yeah, that's that's you know. not, that's not going to get broken because the game has shifted. Yeah. Um, I mean, Ichiro was the the only only player in the last fifty yeah, what's the, years what's who had a chance. Current, what's the oh yeah, but, but with the with, with the, the endurance streak, yeah, I don't I mean, think what's the current lead? this anymore? I mean, you do really we have even, to do you even have a track of 
who is actually the best right now? Y'all are approaching this a little differently than I would have thought. So I appreciate all yeah. of these, but the first thing I want to know is like what's what's next? Like how many standard deviations above, or how much beyond his peer? Something like well, that. Well, of course, Lou Gehrig had twenty one thirty, and then uh, before that, interestingly, I think the third longest streak of all time is the guy that Lou Gehrig replaced. Oh, really? Wally, wow. Pip? Wally Pip has maybe a thousand. Okay. Wally Pip had some incredibly long streak that Gehrig replaced him. Well, that's crazy. But I think there. I think I don't know if anyone else has broken a thousand. Yeah, I'd be interested to sort of see who the kind yeah. of current leader is and whether. But it's also, just, if you just add up the number of games, I mean, you have to play sixteen seasons. It would be sixteen. It would be sixteen consecutive seasons. Forget playing sixteen. Just playing sixteen seasons. Well, you know, we we talk about injuries and keeping guys on the field and sports science, and it yeah. seems it is it's nope. this frontier that's really hard to to push on. But put and it, here's, turn, turn it around. I think we're recognizing the importance of rest, and I think that you have to be a good player. Otherwise, why would you want yeah. to play them every day? Yeah. Right? So once you're at a, a level to be played every day. It's hard to believe you're not going. You're going to you're going to ignore the science of of taking some rest. And the baseball season is grueling, very long to play every day, sometimes twice with travel. Also, okay, I think, it's, it's, so okay. I think scientifically, if you look at the way the game has changed, this is just not going to be. So I'd rather look at it. But it's, but 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 doesn't that make it even more impressive? Yeah. We understand yeah. the yes. value of rest no. so much more. Look look look. So I think we're look. arguing that it's unlikely that that record's going to be broken but as well. Look but. at look at how much it outpaces the guys that came before. So Gary was twenty one thirty. Everett Scott thirteen oh seven. Steve Garvey. Now we're getting into our era steve garvey is fourth on the list and he had 1207 yeah but less than half streak streak um exceedances don't behave like other exceedances talk about that well because once you once you break the streak you you, then the expected time until you until you continue it is a lot Mm -hmm. longer than it's not a time bound so a home run streak for uh, a streak a home run count has a limit the number of home runs in a season this gives you a fixed pie and you try to fill it up as much as you can with a streak you just keep going so the expected for example when dimaggio broke this uh, i guess it was sisler's record 44 his expected number of gains is like six or seven before just just by the waiting time distribution so the fact that he went another 12 after that is you know whatever so you expect streaks to go to have exceedances that that are much larger than the interesting the other thing about the game streak another reason why i think it'll possibly never be broken is it's seen as so unobtainable that it's not like a manager is going to say, well, let's yeah. play Cade Massey this game, because he. if yeah. I don't, I don't want to be the guy that ends the streak. Right. All right, we've got well, 2,500 yeah, games to go. Once, you're not getting once there. Once you get close to it, I yeah, think there would be that psychology, but, but you're we're not, not going to get close to it. Yeah, that's All right, right, fellas, we're taking the corner and heading to the home stretch. It's Warden Moneyball's Over Under. Eric is here, rolling in last minute, so we'll let Eric drive the over-under bus. All right, so the the first one, actually, since I didn't know this was going to be on our list, but I had already brought this, I was going to bring this up today anyway. 2.5 over or under the number of 100-win teams in baseball. Now, let me just give you guys a little bit of math. It shows in front of us, the Dodgers, Yankees, Twins, and Astros are all trending above that now. If the season ended, if, if everyone performed in the rest of the season like they performed. The Yankees would be at 104, the Twins 110, the Astros 110, and the Dodgers 112. So 104, 110, 110, and 112 would be their expected number at their current winning percentage. So I'll start this week. I'll start with Shane. Over under two and a half teams that win 100 games. Um, over under two and a half. So you need three of them. Uh, I'm going to st- take the under. I took the under... 
Uh, I think at 1.5 before the season on the number of teams you with did? 100. Yeah, you know, um, and, and certainly I did not expect the Twins to be doing what they're doing. I thought you know the Dodgers and Houston, uh, Dodgers and Astros would probably be the teams if they were to. Um, I'm still going to take the under, but there are a lot of bad teams out there that the good teams are beating up on, so that's the only thing that gives me hesitation. But I am still going to take the under. Okay, so I'll go to Cade Massey. So I know, I know to do nothing other than to go to Fangraphs and ask their projected standings. I put too much confidence in here because I don't know yeah. their exact methodology, and it may not be as nuanced as we'd like, but they have only two teams right now projected to be more than 100, the Dodgers and the Astros at 102. And then after that, Yankees 98, Twins 96. That's pretty far down, so yeah. I'm going to go ahead and go with the under. Okay. Uh, Adi? Hold on, you can't do that. You're oh, you want me to go next? Yeah, okay, yeah, I will yeah, go, I'm going to go, go with the over, but the reason I'm a, this is the math I'm going to do. What winning percentage would those teams need in the second half, and how disparate or down. distinct yeah. is that from where they are right now? This, the the, the, the Fangrass projections say to me that the Fangrass really is not buying into the Twins. Well, they that must would be really the one have, you'd have yeah. to. But, but the question is, how much are you not buying into them? So, for example, with 100 games remaining, if they play roughly 600 ball instead of 680 ball, they get to a they get to 100. So you'd have to be a sub 600 team, which by the way, that's much better than anyone projected at the beginning of the yeah. season. So I'm going to go over, but I agree. I think it rests on the Twins. It doesn't rest on the Yankees. I don't think the Yankees get to 100. Ooh, <laughs> wow. Well, I think mathematically. You have to agree with fan graphs and the calculations that you have done. I think the expected number is right around two and a half. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, it's interesting because um, I've been reading the, the range book by the, David Epstein, and one of the things he talked about at length was don't think internally, think externally when you make these forecasts. So what does that mean? Meaning, I, I want to look at the Yankees and look at the Yankees and go, oh, they're great. Inside and, view versus outside inside view. Inside view versus outside view. And, and so I think there's a reason why I can't bet against the Yankees because I can't get out of inside view on yeah. them. Yeah. And so the smart view is definitely under my head and my heart is saying over. <laughs> okay. So I don't know what, what so I'm going over. Here, right? So I'm definitely going over. All right. One <laughs> last one. one last one. Heart. We have heart. the big match. I think I got a lot of surprise when we were talking about tennis. 0.5 sets Federer takes on Nadal. And I'll start. By the way, I'll start just for <laughs> I think, position I, I, I think my gut is telling me under. I, but my heart's telling me he'll take one set. <laughs> so I'm going to go over. Uh, over. Right. One set. Yeah. He takes one set. Well, exactly I, one. I have a chance to hedge my other bet of 2.5 sets lost in total. Um, but uh, So I'm not going to hedge, though. I'm gonna yeah, why would you hedge? I'm going to go over. No, I, 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 I trust Bradlow's gut on all tennis <laughs> issues. I'm going under. <laughs> exactly. I mean, Eric is the one who talked me into yes. under. I mean, yeah. he's gone against yeah, his own right. I know. I know. history. I find you so persuasive, I disagree with you. So there we go. I'm, I'm going under. Actually, uh, yeah, yeah. Boy, I, I don't know what, what's wrong with me. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. That has been another episode of Wharton Moneyball. We do this every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Appreciate you being here. Many thanks for the whole crew. Eventually, we had the whole four set of co-hosts in here Eric Bradlow Audie Weiner Shane Jensen this is Cade Massey Maddie D running the show as always and giving us a terrific rundown to make it better than it would be otherwise my god can you imagine the show without the rundown and many thanks to Daniel Bruno Dion Simpkins in the back pound of the bonbons always happy to have him in the building and his spiritual support if nothing else we will be back next time between now and then enjoy your sports For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.